Hi, welcome back to our Private Capital Perspectives podcast series. It's Alex Last here with Richard Perris. Hi, Richard. Hi, Alex. It's great to be back. So we're starting, I think, the, the first of a trio of conversations with industry leaders in the legal profession focusing on private funds. Um, who, are we, who are we speaking to today? So the first interviewee is Jason Glover, who is head of Simpson Thatcher's London office. Uh, he's also one of the most well-known and well-respected private funds lawyers in the market, and he represents some of the biggest private equity firms out there in their fundraisings. Jason's obviously based in London, uh, so it was a great conversation about his career and his thoughts on the market and investor negotiations, and so I hope you enjoy it. Fantastic. I'm here with Jason Glover. Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. Good morning, Richard. So it does seem quite quiet in the office here. Is that normal these days? Like, are most people working hybrid or...? We moved to a structure where people are mandated to come in on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah. Um, but we relaxed the rules at the weekend, given what the government was saying. Right, Not right, that right. I always listen to government, but <laughs> yeah, on this occasion I did. And um, so we'll see what happens. And how are you finding it, the, the three-day-a-week mandate? I mean, obviously, it's five days working, three days in the office. Um, sure. So it's just to clarify... But, Probably um, seven days working more realistically <laughs> for most of them, I would well, think. Well, that's true. Um, I would say that it's working pretty well. I mean, the reason for going for the three-day was to make sure that we had coordination of people being together, people learning through osmosis, which, you know, if you think about the legal profession, so much is learning on the job. Yeah. I think it's quite difficult to do over Zoom. So actually having people in consistently on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday has worked out very well. Yeah. So we, we're probably at 90, 95% those days. The 5 or 10% will be holidays. So it's, yeah, it's working pretty well. And actually what's very interesting is on a Monday and Friday, you might think it was completely empty, but we still get... 30, 40% of people in those days. Interesting. I like to think it's because of the attractions of the office and the working environment. The free food might help. I've never been offered uh, quite the range of coffee I was offered when I came into this <laughs> meeting room. So I can see what you're, you're trying hard to get people back in. You do realise that we've learned from the private equity community. Maybe CVC were behind the times on this one, but I was always struck by Simben and the service and also Charterhouse and the service that they would offer. If, as soon as you arrived, it was similar to the experience you had. It was, what sort of coffee would you like, Mr. Glover? And, well, I uh, thought CVC did okay. We had pretty good cookies, as I recall. You but... had, very good, you had yeah. very good food, I have to say, but I think there was probably a reliance upon coffee in the room. But the barista service that you get from some of the yeah. PE houses, not a reason to invest or not to invest in a PE house, but, it, but as a service provider, it's quite Might nice. tip the balance in the margins. <laughs> so you're, so you're, now, you're obviously sitting here as head of the London office at Simpson Thatcher now from, since, was that 2017? Correct. But your core practice is still private funds. And within that, you have developed a specialism in the, the, the larger end of the market, the sort of bulge bracket of the private equity world, you know, the CVCs, EQTs, BC Partners, the, those kind of firms. Was that a deliberate sort of strategy for you to focus on that through your career? Or was that something that just kind of happened? It's a very good question. I mean, it really was serendipity. It wasn't It wasn't anything that was planned. So I started in 1989. And in those days, private equity was really, to say it was nascent would probably be wrong. It was embryonic. Mm -hmm. it, it really hadn't kicked off at all. Deals in those days, particularly in Europe, were shared deals. You know, if you looked at the track records of 
the PE houses, they were all pretty much in the same investment. So it was classic co-investing. I wanted to be an M&A lawyer, just like you turned out to be, Richard. (laughs) That was my intent. But of course, starting at Clifford Chance, you had no control over which seats that you got. And my corporate seat ended up being a regulatory seat. At that point in time, there'd been a recent change to legislation. We just had the Financial Services Act 1986 had come out. It it was one of these acts that came out, but I think came into force in maybe it's 1988. So it's very new. Within that group, that regulatory group, they did a few quirky things, uh, unit trusts. And there was a bit of private equity that was done. It was actually led by Catherine Coase, one of the most talented lawyers I certainly ever have come across. She was essentially an insurance regulatory lawyer, but had done a couple of private equity funds. And the firm had had Candover and Charterhouse as clients. So I remember as a trainee having to do some proofing on what was the fourth Charterhouse fund and thinking... They were already at number four in 1989. They were were very early pioneers. I mean, they had been going, I think, since 1930, in some form or other, using balance sheet money. What essentially happened was I did the proofreading and was just bewildered by the complexity of the document. I thought, I'll achieve something in my career if one day I can understand this document, let alone I never thought that I'd be drafting them. Um, How's that going? (laughs) I'm still learning. So what what essentially happened was that I went through my rotation of seats, as you do as a lawyer, and at the end of it, a decision as to where to qualify. And to be honest, I I was thinking long-term, a career in law, I wanted it to be fulfilling and challenging. And this private equity area was the most challenging and fulfilling area that I'd come across. So I qualified into that group, but essentially as a regulatory lawyer. Roll the clock forward about two years, so we're now 1993, And Candover were doing their 1993 fund. And Catherine was very busy with insurance work. She was doing a lot of work for the insurance industry, I think particularly, if I remember correctly, Standard Life. And she needed support from a lawyer to essentially do the fund that she would oversee. But trying to find regulatory lawyers who want to do private equity funds is quite difficult. You know, your classic regulatory lawyer is quite bookish, doesn't, doesn't always like negotiating. In those days, at least I say, would often be introverted. And I know this I'm going to get into trouble personal. here. There might be some of them out there <laughs> listening to this. Well, <laughs> no, I've got a huge regard for them. And I did say perhaps how it was then. It was a very different world. And eventually, I think Catherine worked her way down the list of associates and yeah. it got to me as a two-year qualified. And she asked me to do it. And so I did. And... I think she would be the first to say that she supervised it but wasn't uh, heavily involved. At that point in time, I I did the Candover Fund and then straight afterwards, Charterhouse were doing their fifth fund and the same thing happened. So at the age of 25, I guess it was, 1994 now, I had done pretty much single-handedly two of the three largest funds ever to be raised in Europe. The third one was Schroeder's. Um, became Pamira. So that was really the basis for the reputation starting. And no sooner had I done that than I was asked to do the world's first infrastructure fund, which I subsequently went to work for. 
and uh, that was it. So the career sort of took off and, and I was just right place, right time. Was then known on the conference circuit. There was myself and Jonathan Blake who yeah. were sort of pushing each other, vying for top spot. And I've always said that the media tried to create this rivalry between the two of us, but I always had a huge regard for Jonathan. He had really started the industry with negotiating the... BVCA inland revenue statement back in 1987. So that was it. I guess then the career followed where I spent some time out of industry. Yeah, that... I was going to say, because you kind of jacked it in for a while, didn't you, to go and be COO at well, the Asian Infrastructure Partners and then Duke Street, Street first. Which was originally, what was the band? Hamburg, Hamburg that's, yeah. I guess people would question two things. Why did you go in the first place? And then probably more rationally, why did you come back to private practice? It's an unusual move to come back. The reason for going in the first place, picture the scenario. You're four and a half years qualified. You've done the largest funds in Europe. You're doing it on your own. Probably at that point in time, I had a business that was worth maybe two and a half million pounds a year, which in those days was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. you know, you'd find very few partners were generating that sort of revenue. But you're four and a half years qualified and you were being told you had to wait for partnership. And I was always in a rush. And so it was a case of thinking, well, what do I do with the next two, three years plus? And then again, serendipity happened. This was the days before mobile phones. And I went in to see one of the partners at Clifford Chance who will remain nameless and basically said, look, I want two things. I'm being paid £45,000 a year and I'm generating two and a half million pounds a year. I want paying off the scale. Uh -huh. And I also want assurances that I'll be put up for partnership at the first opportunity. Yeah. And the partner concerned <laughs> probably thought, rightly so, I was a young upstart and put me back in my place and said no to both. And so I thought, what do I do? You know, you sort of bid and you've not got what you wanted. So I actually went on holiday and came back to a voicemail on my home phone number. And it was Eddie Truel who ran Hamburg Europe Ventures. Right. And he basically said, Jason, I'm just worried that we've offended you in some way. We've been working together for a couple of years now. I've been asking Clifford Chance for you to come on secondment. And they've indicated that you're not interested. <laughs> no conversation had taken place with me. And so I got on the phone to Eddie and said, why not? cut out the middleman. Why don't I come and join you permanently? So I did. So I joined uh, Ambrose as was as their COO. It was quite an attractive... Australian, so it wasn't as an in-house lawyer? No, it was, a, it was a chief operating officer. So it was effectively doing everything other than the investment side, overseeing that. So it, it was a great opportunity. At that point in time, Hambros were raising their third fund. So I took the lead with Eddie on the fundraising, went and visited investors and oversaw that whole process. So that was quite a significant thing to do as a lawyer to then be fundraising. Yeah. And we quintupled monies under management with that fund. So it was pretty successful. I, I felt that that gave me an edge, really, that I'd done something that nobody else had done. I wasn't intending at this point to come back to private practice. But what happened was that I'd arrived at Hambrose to be their COO of their global private equity operation. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the global operation hadn't been put together at that time. We yeah. had eight or nine separate businesses at Hambrose who were private equity. The job was basically to pull it all together. I had carry on all of the, you know, across the global platform. At the point that I arrived, there was a chap called Jim Mellon of Regent Pacific, mm -hmm. who was an activist investor, and he bought stock in Ambrose, which was a listed company, and was roughing it up. 
So no sooner had I arrived than senior management did a vault fast. They weren't so keen on pursuing difficult internal restructurings with the global private equity business. So I was very much a minister without portfolio. I, I'd got right. this job as COO globally, which was quite exciting. And I didn't think the job of COO of the London operation was sufficient. It was a business. We maybe had 12, 14 employees. It wasn't. Was the London operation what became Duke Street at that yes, point? It yeah, was. Right. it was. But, you know, to put a sense of scale on these things, the two funds I referred to earlier, Candover and Charterhouse, 1993, they were... 325 and 350 million. Yeah. Hambro's yeah. HEV3 we raised was 160 million, I think. You know, they, they were small. So the COO wasn't a big job if you were managing 14 people, of which, you know, eight or nine were investment professionals. Right. You, were, you were managing the rest. Again, serendipity. I, having left to join Duke Street or Hambro's as it was, and having raised the first infrastructure fund, Asian Infrastructure Fund, the chief executive of Asian Infrastructure Fund, a chap called Will Liley, got in touch with me and said, congratulations on the job at Hambro's. I wish I'd known that you were thinking of moving. If I'd have known, I would have offered you a job. And I very flippantly said, well, there's nothing stopping you offering one. And the next week, I got a letter stamped Hong Kong with a contract inside it. <laughs> it was literally a contract. It had everything in there, including salary. And I thought, oh, what do I do here? I've invited this offer. Yeah. Um, so I talked to my wife about it. And it was a tough decision. Duke Street or Hambro's, it was pretty clear that things weren't going to work out as I wanted to because of the activist investor. And that was going to be challenging. Nevertheless, it was a very fine decision. And we decided actually we'd stay in the UK and I'd continue at Duke Street. So I wrote back to Will and basically said, thanks very much, but your offer's not in the ballpark. I thought that was the best way. I'd invited a, a right. contract and how was I going to turn it down? I then get a phone call the next week and said, oh, I've got your, your letter. How much do you want? So I gave a number that I thought was sufficiently large yeah. to mean that he would say no. Uh, and he came back and said, done. So now we had a very good financial offer that was, you know, I guess equivalent to being a partner at a law firm. Yeah. I was in a job which I thoroughly enjoyed at Duke Street, probably looking back the most enjoyable or, or certainly one of the most enjoyable periods of my working career, probably with the exception of starting at Simpson Thatcher. But, you know, this was an appealing opportunity. So we moved out to uh, Asia. I was a COO there. What happened there was that the main backer was Peregrine. So there's a bank called Peregrine Bank who existed in the 90s. And Will had decided, well, he and I had decided, rightly as it turned out, that infrastructure that was solely focused on Asia was too narrow. It wasn't sufficiently geographically diverse. A lot of the economy's performances were linked. We had decided that we were going to go global. Yeah. So we'll move from Hong Kong to Australia to set up down there. And we assumed that Peregrine would be along for the ride. What we didn't know was that Peregrine were in financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. And after about three months, Will was fired. Right. He, there was a mismatch between his global ambition and what Peregrine wanted. And that changed the dynamic of the working relationship. And the person who was his successor was somebody who 
worked in Asian infrastructure fund, but we didn't really see eye to eye on strategy. He was very much in the peregrine camp, I think, in terms of restricting the growth of the business. I stayed there for a bit because I'd only been there for three months. I thought uh -huh. it was too soon to move back yeah. and in endure. And endure is the right word. It was a really tough period of time for about another year until my wife became pregnant. Right. And then it was a case of deciding what to do. And at that point in time, it was, you know, choice do I stay in private equity industry? There was an opportunity with one of the world's leading PE firms to be the COO out in Hong Kong. I chose not to do that and inquired about coming back to London. Um, <laughs> Did you call the same partner at Clifford Chance <laughs> who must have enjoyed the phone call <laughs> I didn't, and previously I I turned down your request. I think I was sufficiently savvy to work out that that probably wasn't the right <laughs> way in. So what I did, I, I did two things. First of all, I interviewed at a variety of law firms. I mean, pr probably a story for another day, but quite bizarre as to what people's perspective was of what I would do. Right. But suffice to say, I ended up a very good offer from Linklaters and also was pursuing an offer with Ashurst and I essentially used that as leverage and got in touch with Adam Signey. I worked out that if I went back to my old group that I would probably be put at the back of the queue at best. So I got in touch with Adam Signey who very capably negotiated my route back into the firm. But it was slightly odd because there was the, by this stage there was the funds group. With well, the I was going to say, so Adam, Adam Signey at that time was a senior M&A partner at Clifford Chance, right? So Correct. he was focused on private equity, but from the M&A side. So the funds group wasn't really his thing. It wasn't his thing. And what actually happened was that I actually joined the M&A team right. to do funds. And it was quite controversial. So we effectively had two groups both doing funds. Now, there was a logic to it in a way because the practice that I had left was still a predominantly regulatory practice. Yeah. It was led by Tim Harrington. Yeah. And funds was very much a, an adjunct. Not being unfair on them, but I don't think that they had seen where private equity was going. Yeah. You know, they were the most successful regulatory team in the city, yeah. and they were quite rightly focusing on that. So the main focus was regulatory with a bit of private equity. Yeah. And that didn't really make a lot of sense strategically. So there was a logic for me to come back to a private equity team, albeit doing the funds yeah. work. We ran parallel teams for about two years. Eventually, David Pearson had taken over as the head of London Corporate. And yeah. Pretty much the first thing he did was to say, I think it makes sense for you to merge these two practices. Well, I was going to say, because I joined that group as a trainee, which is obviously when things really took off for Clifford Chance. Um, <laughs> it seemed perfectly, lo I mean, I didn't question it because I was just a trainee, right? But it did seem perfectly logical that the funds and the M&A groups that were working on it was a client-focused group, essentially, yes. uh, or it seemed to be. I, I don't know how much overlap, looking back, there was between the funds clients and the M&A clients. But there was an interesting dynamic there that you could, in theory, be an M&A lawyer and a funds lawyer for the private equity clients at the same time. Yes. And there were other firms where there were people who did that still. And that's something that doesn't exist anymore, right? That, that's complete, yeah. that really is a very rare breed now. And I was wondering if you ever think that that was a bad move because... You know, the, the combination of understanding how the funds work and how the M&A side works is obviously great from a client perspective, right? It is. I mean, you're absolutely right. The model in those days was most private equity businesses, funds businesses, were attached to the transactions team. Yeah. So, so it really was an evolution of doing transactions for 
a firm and then doing this fund and sort of learning as you went along. If you look at groups who did it, John Daglian was probably, I'd say he was very good at it. He had built a very close relationship with Collar and others by doing the transactional work and the funds work. You had others who had drawn a clear separation. Ashurst, for instance, who uh, Jeffrey Green was sort of leading the transactional side and Charlie Geffen, and then you had... Uh, Jeremy Sheldon doing the fun side. So there are two different models. But what became very apparent, I think, even at the point in time that I had come back, because there was never an intention that I would do both, although I did do some transactional work to start with, but it was very apparent that the industry was becoming more sophisticated at that Mm -hmm. point in time. So a very good example would be that side letters, for instance. Side letters, the first time I think I did a side letter was 1999-2000. They just didn't exist before that. Everybody yeah. would sign up to the same LPA. Yeah. And that was partly because the LPAs were, the funds were themselves quite small. You didn't have hundreds of investors. The investors themselves weren't regulated in the way they are now. So because of changes like that and then commercial changes that took place, something like a no-fault removal provision, again, didn't exist in the early to mid-90s. Uh, that really only came in. I read somewhere you were credited with inventing that. Well, I, I hope not, because I've always said that I'm a GP side. I mean, what I did, what I invented <laughs> was the technology to sort of mean that exercising a no fault removal wasn't so attractive for investors. So what happened in the early days? There'd always been a four cause removal provision. So, you know, if someone does something egregious, fraudulent or whatever, they could be kicked out. Rightly so. It was then around, I think, 1999, 2000. I remember the first fund where I had to include it. It was Star Capital, Star Capital's first fund. I wasn't very happy. I was really trying to fight it. Tony Mallon, who ran Star Capital, was very keen that we should get this investor in. And really, it was a very simple provision. It was just investors can remove the manager on a percentage vote. That was it. There was no management fee pickup or yeah. carry mechanics yeah. or whatever and then it was just a debate about the percentage so I, I think we ended up on that fund at like a 90 percent threshold so people were comfortable in putting it in because they said we're never going to get to the 90 percent threshold so what i did once that came in i started to think about the provision and thought well people say it won't happen but you never know and the concern that i had was Investors themselves were under fiduciary duties. And at that point in time, there were a number of fund managers who basically took over rump portfolios. It was almost, you know, continuation funds 20 years ago. There were these teams who would take on funds that had two or three investments left. And and the way that they would do it is they would take over the management. So a manager would be removed and another one would be put in. And it occurred to me that... Investors with fiduciary duties, it'd be pretty difficult for an investor offered the opportunity to replace one manager with another who was maybe going to charge half the management fee not to say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah. And so the argument that had always been used was we're never going to use the no fault removal provision. It's there for our protection, but we're not going to use it. And it was like, really? I can see circumstances where it could be used. And also, I'd got away with, I think, 90% on star capital, but the market was quickly moving towards a 75% threshold. So what I did was really work out what the mechanic should be if it was exercised. If you can't fix the problem, I, 
not have a no fault removal, at least make it difficult to exercise. And that was really an evolution over seven or eight years, maybe a bit less, maybe five or six years. It finally got to the position I wanted to get to with EQT4, which was a 2004, 2005 fund, if I remember correctly. They did EQT4 and then EQT5 was shortly after. So I think it actually was EQT5, maybe it was 2006. But we ended up with a provision that had a management fee compensation if you were removed. And then, interestingly, had a carry mechanic, which, and even now, a lot of people don't use this, but which basically said we crystallized the value of the carry at the time of removal. Yeah. It's a first charge on the fund. Mm -hmm. So you get your carry paid as soon as there's money uh, generated by the fund. And you get an uplift on any future value created on the investments that you had bought prior to removal by reference to a formula, which was the number of days you had managed that investment divided by the number of days that the investment was managed by the fund as a whole. And the rationale behind all of those things was you always had to come up with a commercial rationale. So when we're dealing with investors, it was a case of, well, we're entitled to carry. We've done nothing wrong. We shouldn't have to wait until the end of the life of the fund, not least because the new manager could destroy the value and it's only appropriate that we get a bit of an uplift if the investment continues to increase in value because there has to be a recognition of the time that we spent managing that asset. Do you feel like the sort of evolution of these fund terms has been everything is investor-led in terms of becoming more, you know, the trend is towards investor-friendly documents, I guess. Is, it, is that a fair comment that over the last two decades the trend has been towards investor-friendly documents and your role as you've seen it, is sort of trying to fight that tide as much as you can and install sort of protections from the manager side. Yeah, I think it probably is. I've never regarded the investors as the enemy as such. I I mean, I've got a huge regard for many of the investors. They're highly intelligent, and I think that they're rightly thinking of their own interests. But I think what was happening, I think, in the early years was a sense that these documents didn't matter. People were very focused on getting the money and no one would ever, ever refer to the documents. And, and that mm-hmm. was, I think, a degree of complacency on the part of the GPs. And I was very keen, not all GPs, but I wanted to make sure that we did build in protections, but they were entirely logical. I don't think I've ever sought on behalf of clients to uh, abuse the position by putting something in that's egregious. I mean, investors might disagree, but I think my feeling was that there should always be a commercial logic for a point, but nevertheless, that should be explored. So it's a good point that you make, because I think in the early 2000s, there was a risk that the market was gravitating towards a norm, to a standard template. Right. But I think what happened was that funds at that point in time were getting larger and larger. Investors were more sophisticated too, and it was apparent that many of the larger firms, particularly my clients, didn't want to gravitate to the 50th centile. You know, they felt that they were in a different position to that. Why should they be term takers for things that were considered to be, quotes, market, when they were saying our performance is outperforming the market? It was really a case of working with the GPs and really changing the manner in which legal services were provided for funds. You know, the main competitors at that point in time was S.J. Burwin, and they had done a fantastic job of, it's probably a little bit unfair, but cookie-cutter funds. You know, that if you were a first-time manager, you'd definitely go to Burwin's. They would have something off the shelf. But I felt there was a market for 
people who wanted something that was much more tailored. So I would spend a lot of time with clients just really understanding their business and what their key issues were and stress testing it and then making changes accordingly. So you describe standardization as a risk. So do you think that would be a mistake? If, because I mean, one of the things I'm always asking myself is could private funds, you know, even though they're negotiated each time, is there not a way everyone can just agree for like 90% of all the terms that are in that complicated document that you couldn't understand as a trainee and <laughs> I still can't understand now. 90% of it, because it only comes up in 1% of circumstances, we can just agree what's fair and we'll just say that's a standard thing and then we'll just negotiate on the margins, basically the, the economic terms and that's it. I think that in theory, yes, but in practice, it's a lot harder than that. So, you know, if you take something like a conflicts provision, you could easily say conflicts could be standardized. But the standard that the investors want isn't necessarily a standard that my clients would want to want to have. Well, the to investors adopt. have kind of they've got this ILPA template. I suppose they've a bunch of the investors have gone out there and said this is the standard we yeah. want and there aren't that many large <laughs> bio funds I'm aware of that are fully consistent with that, right? Correct. So, but isn't that just a question of the GPs getting around the table and saying, okay, well, this is what we want, so where's the middle, you know, can we agree? Therein lies a very interesting point from an anti-competitive perspective. You can't do that. So the GPs can't actually gather and say, these are the terms we're going to propose to the market. It's rather bizarre from an antitrust perspective that there's nothing to prevent investors effectively colluding, but GPs can't. So in a way, I think I've been very fortunate because I think that there has inevitably been a move over the last 10, 15 years for the GP side of legal services to be concentrated in the hands of relatively few people. You can't collude, but I think that, you know, the idea that larger GPs are, are, are taking you know, views that are not inconsistent with each other, I think that is helped if you've got the same lawyers acting on the number of funds. It was always a challenge. You, you know, I remember when you and I first spoke, when we were first pitching for CVC and and one of the concerns that you and your colleagues raised, rightly so, was how does this work? We've got our IP and how do we know that's not going to pass to uh, the other clients that you have and vice versa? Well, it's, it's a classic dilemma, isn't it? I mean, you want your lawyers to have market knowledge. You want that shared with you. But at the same time, you don't want your knowledge shared <laughs> with anyone else. Right? Correct. So, so you have these kind of like anonymized, you know, term reviews and all the rest of it. And people yeah. try and find a way through it. And the market sort of gets a general idea of what's in the zone, what the contours of a reasonable fund arrangement are. But it's interesting you say that the GPs can't collude, but the LPs can. I'm not sure that's entirely, strictly speaking, legally true. I think there probably are some limits to what the investors should be doing from an antitrust perspective as well. And I don't, and I don't know, I mean, I, I know when ILPA first came out, certainly those questions were raised as to whether it basically was an attempt to fixed prices and, and obviously that's not the case now it feels like there's this constant merry-go-round if you like and the, and the market dynamics allow the best gps to occasionally you know tweak terms here and there and then it'll shift the other way as the market shifts yeah you know, maybe now actually we're seeing a, probably there's you know next few funds to be raised we'll see that but is that really in the interest of everybody concerned is there sort of a tragedy the comments here that if we all just got together and said okay this is a fair term that everyone can sign up to you know wouldn't we all save ourselves a lot of time and possibly but i, I mean i think the the reality of it is that the private equity business evolves over time things that we have in the documentation now might not have been something that was relevant 
10, 20 years ago. That could be regulatory change that's driving it. It could be market practices. So take something like borrowings, for instance, where the market practice around borrowings has changed significantly, even from yeah. 10 years ago. So you're always having to adjust to market conditions. And that's why I think the notion of a template doesn't really work. It also doesn't work because the demands placed upon a mid-market firm are very different to a large buyout firm, let alone the difference between a venture capital firm and a large buyout fund or a real estate firm and a large buyout fund. I mean, I mean, each of them has differences. And then, you know, you start to get more specific. If I look at the needs of, say, a CVC, it will be significantly different to the needs, say, of an APAX mm -hmm. or a Simben or an EQT. In what, in, what, in what way? Well, take something like EQT, for instance. EQT being listed, its reporting obligations have to be very different to a, a private company. You can't have a reporting regime which effectively gives information to your investors ahead of the market. So the classic types of things that you would have in a reporting provision for a a non-listed PE firm will be very different to a listed PE firm, for example. Right, right. So that would be one example. You know, you, you find ge geographics and where people are based that can have significant impacts on things. Um, even something like the accounting rules that, uh, or accounting principles that people want to report mm -hmm. under. So getting consistency on that in itself would be a challenge. You know, how do you persuade CVC that Simben or Apex's accounting policies that they adopt are the ones that are right for them. CVC will have their own view and, and there'll be ones that they're used to and work for them. So I think that that's where it's very easy to assume everybody can adopt a standard. But when you pick apart every single area of that document, it's very difficult to see what the standardised provision should be. You know, key person, you can never standardise key person. Sure. Um, sure. No fault removal. You probably can't standardise that. Different people will have different views. The firms that have got my provision won't want to give that f up for uh, what people might describe as a market norm. The market norm is you don't crystallise carry at the point that you leave. You, you somehow have got a carry entitlement over the investments that you did at the point that you left and were removed as the GP. So that gives you a very different economic result. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to... Uh, Standardize. Yeah. yeah. If there's no hope for standardization, do you think there's any hope that technology might help us, you know, make the process more efficient? I think technology can have a significant impact. I mean, I think that if I look at areas where I think there's room for improvement, the subscription documentation process is labored. Yeah. That could be a lot more efficient. Yeah. And ourselves and other firms have been looking at that. We've been looking at technology. There have been a number of people who have approached us and other firms about technological solutions. And I think many of us have actually invested substantial amounts to try and find it. But it's, it's proving to be more difficult than people think. Yeah, um, it, it always is. Are you, are you looking to build that in-house or are you working with external we've technology? We've both. We, we've been running a project here for about four years now, trying to get that simplified. It isn't easy and it will come. It's just a question of, of when. Another area that I think you could make substantial savings of time and money would be on the side letters. Yeah, just trying to 
yeah. the most favoured nation process where you sort of have to show everyone the side letters and elect the, the provisions that you want. And like, yeah, you could, I mean, that's crying out to be it is. put it, on some kind of technology platform. Right? It is. Again, we've developed some technology internally that works for smaller funds. The problem is it's the sheer volume of th th that then creates the problems mm -hmm. because... This is where I don't think it's in the investor's interest to standardise things either. Just to put things in context, the, the limited partnership agreement will run to maybe 100 pages. If I were to put all of the side letters back to back on one of the, the large buyout funds that we do, that will run to two and a half thousand pages. Yeah. Now, you can condense that and, and, and make it so that you know a lot of those... Clauses, the repeat clauses, yeah. but even when we do that exercise, and you'll remember from your, your days at CVC, that still runs to 350, 400 pages. Sure. And, and the reason why it does is because, I don't know if it's the investors or investors' council, but you provide a standard set of wording and people want it changed. So... There you, you go again. We've got it all coming in on the other side, the standardization. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I think the challenge with standardisation is I'm not sure even the investors. But that time it. you were prepared to blame it on the council. I noticed <laughs> that on the GP side, it was very important for the client. Well, I, I think <laughs> that we always say with the side letters is there's a benefit in it being standardised because you've got a series of legal obligations that your client has to meet, and it's not in their interest to have 30 different variants of the same thing. And the risk, of course, is either you agree something where it conflicts that would be obviously bad and that would be poor if that was to happen but i think it does happen on occasions but perhaps more importantly 30 different variations of the same thing requires 30 different approaches to take the administrative burden is so much greater um costs etc and yeah. you know this isn't about charging more management fees or anything like that but this you know you do want to try and make it efficient if you can but i think the reality is yes yeah, do, do you think funds lawyers are the best funds lawyers are good managers. Like the, there seems to be a much more of an organizational administrative element to the process when you're negotiating these huge multilateral arrangements. Like you're not just doing a bilateral contract each time. Yeah. Is that a skill set that you think is really what makes a good funds lawyer? I don't think in itself it makes a good funds lawyer. I think there's more to it than that. The logistics side is a huge component of it. We're often asked by other law firms... How do you do it? How do you manage a, a CVC or an EQT with 350, 400 investors? Yeah. What's the logistic process? And, and uh, as you all know from your experience, there is a huge logistics process. You're constantly running checklists, trackers, etc., to make sure that it works, that nothing falls between the cracks. And it's very time intensive. So when one looks at these mega funds and how many legal hours are required to do it. You're, you're talking mid-teen thousands of hours, 15, yeah. 16, yeah. 17,000 hours of legal or paralegal time. Yeah. A lot of that is logistics. Yeah. So th there is a huge element of this, which is management. And I think, again, you know, if you look at the marketplace, the larger funds tend to be done by two, three, four firms. And I think that that's a combination of expertise in process management plus just having a big enough bench to be able to do it you know you couldn't do one of those large funds with a team of 20 or 30 it'd be impossible 
I mean, you could probably do it with 20 or 30, but they, they, they wouldn't be able to do anything, anything else, else yeah. in that time. Yeah. And of course, one of the things about a, f a fund is you set it up, but your work doesn't stop there. There are issues coming up all the time relating yeah. to a fund. Yeah. Back in the day before the clients had in-house counsel, the, you know, the funds counsel would often effectively be, you know, the de facto in-house counsel for the client, right? But yeah, it strikes me that there are two different skill sets to a funds lawyer. There's that administrative operational expertise and then there's the actual you know commercial nous where you know you're coming up with the early bird discount or getting around the no-fault divorce making it better are those skill sets and i'm not sure they're always complement they're not always found in the same person so yeah. do you find it hard to build a team you know is, is that one of the challenges of building a team that, that's good in private funds that you need both those skill sets but they're not always there and in a I package with everybody? I think it's a really good question. We have deliberately limited the growth of our practice over the years because of that dilemma. We have typically, really throughout the whole time that Gareth Earl and myself set up the practice back in 2011, we've consistently turned away to probably two in every three instructions. Yeah. It's not a marketing puff, it's actually true. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why has been because we've been constrained by. Um, resource at the most senior level, i.e. partners. And that has been because we've had many people who've passed through here who have been excellent at logistics, yeah. but maybe can't think out of the box. Yeah. And then we've had people who can think out of the box but can't do the logistics. And yeah. we've always refused to make people who don't have both sets of skills. And we may have got it wrong. Those people have gone on to have very successful careers at many of our competitors. Yeah. But I think it's a view that we take and that to say we think that's the right thing. Because I think that when you're doing a, a fund, particularly a large fund, there are challenges and needs to think out the box the whole time. And if you don't have that aptitude and all you're doing is process, yeah, you'll, you'll do a successful fund. But guess what? You know, the next fund will look exactly the same and the next one will look exactly the same. And before you know it, 10 years have passed and then that fund document's completely passed its sell-by date. Do you think that as technology outsourcing gets utilised more for the operational administrative side of things, there's the potential for those skill sets to kind of be split up? For example, a Simpson-Thatcher core team could focus on the, you know, the value-add commercial side of things and the structuring and all the rest of it. And then everything else, you wouldn't need that operational skill set in, say, 10 years' time when we got all the technology and, you know, half of it's done by a team in wherever it is, India or Ireland or whatever. Do you see that as the future or do you think you'll, it'll still be that like, you need everything here? It's a great question to ask. I think that of, of the skills that are required, I think the ones that are in the shortest supply are the thinking out the box. Yeah. That is the hardest bit. And I can see a situation where... You say, if people have got that skill, why then are we wasting that scarce commodity on logistics management yeah. that people can do it? So I can certainly see a situation where a team is constructed so that you have partners who excel in one area and partners excel in the other. But they'll need to work very, very closely together. It, 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 there's more connectivity between those things than you might think. Yeah, We've been very fortunate, I think, that I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think all of our partners have got both of those skills. And we, as I've said just now, we've declined making people up who we didn't feel had that full panoply yeah. of skills. And that will have cost us. You know, they have gone on to be very successful partners elsewhere. But 
I don't think we've ever thought of it as a cost. I think we we've always said we're not in the business of generating revenues for revenue's sake. We want the right sort of revenue. And yeah. by that, we want to be doing the most innovative work, the most demanding work, the most challenging work against the most challenging of investors. We, we've never wanted to go down the cookie-cutter route. Yeah. And, and indeed, when, when we've pitched for work, we've always seen it as a partnership and, and, and trying to establish whether we're actually right for the prospective client, you know, one of the questions we ask is, what are you actually after? Because if what you're really after is somebody who converts your term sheet as a done deal into an LPA, that's not really for us. Our rationale behind that has always been because we, like our competitors, are very expensive. And to provide a function which is just documentation, I don't think you can really justify the fees, the fees are more justifiable when you can demonstrate value add. Yeah, and, and if you split, and because you're charging on a time basis, you know, I've often had this debate with people like, the real value add is probably worth way more than the 20 minutes it took you to come up with the early bird discount or whatever it is. Yeah. But the leverage model helps you to sort of recover that value through the time that it takes for the administrative side. If you split it up, you yeah. need to change the charging model for the for the actual valuable piece, right? Uh, which you do. You, which you will do. be interesting to see if it happens. You do. I mean, I mean, we have we have in the past, or I, I personally have been approached by people in the past and said, "Would you be willing to operate with that value add bit?" But we'll have this firm doing yeah the day to day stuff. I've always declined it precisely for that reason. You can't price the value of it at all. It's incredibly difficult. But I think, as you say, within within a particular firm, I think you can potentially split those roles out if you wanted to. Yeah. But I do think it still has its challenges. As I say, we've been fortunate enough to have people who can do both. Yeah. Yeah. So you were part of the first wave of US firms sort of coming into the London private funds market with, you know, setting up the Simpson. You didn't set up the Simpson office as per se, but you set up the funds practice here, right? Yeah. And it's been a very successful exercise for all of the, the US firms coming in. You know, I, I guess the, the narrative most people put on that is that they just came in with huge checkbooks and, you know, just poached a load of heavy hitting partners. And that was the model. Is that really all that happened? Or was there a sort of a client need for a US based firm as well, mm. or a skill set that was available to the US firms that the magic circle didn't have? There are a combination of reasons why the US firms were successful, but also appealed to people like me. So I wasn't disaffected by Clifford Chance. Mm -hmm. Put remuneration to one side. That's obviously always going to be an element of this. But the real attraction to me of Simpson Thatcher was that picture the scene. You've had the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. In the early 2000s, you had a lot of Johnny-come-lately investors. You had the banks piling into private equity, insurance companies piling into private equity, people coming from all over the place. And then the financial crisis happens and all of that drops away. And what you now have is what the market traditionally was, which was a very heavy reliance upon the U.S., but of course, the US is the most heavily regulated market in the world. Yeah. And so to be effective for your client, you need really, really good US advice. And I always remember at Clifford Chance being asked the question by people, OK, 
That's the book answer they've been given. But what do Blackstone do? What mm-hmm. do KKR do? What right. do Carlisle do? What, what, how do you not get round it, but how do you work within these parameters? Yeah. And I could never give that answer yeah. at Clifford Chance. That was the shortcomings yeah. of, of that platform. And it's really the ability of relatively few US firms, but who have got that experience mm-hmm. to be able to help their European clients navigate through fundraisings, particularly in the States. So that was really the key to it. A lot of US firms have tried in the UK and have failed. Mm -hmm. I won't embarrass them by naming them, but there are a lot who failed. We'll just put it in the notes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not a given that you're going to succeed at this. It's not a given that you you chuck the money at it. I, I think it has to be really supported by... The US. And then the other thing as well is the value add element. You know, there's a there's a great story I always tell people about the early days at Simpson Thatcher. I, people thought I was mad to move in 2010. It was like right off the back of the worst fundraising environment yeah. ever. Certainly my career, I've been doing it for over 30 years. I was very fortunate that I had BC Partners as a client and they agreed to come over with me. And they were being confronted by an investor who said, forget your management fee. We're not prepared to pay that management fee. We want you to come up with something different. Mm -hmm. Now, BC Partners, they they got the classic one and a half percent. It was a big check that this investor was writing. And BC Partners has said to me, well, we're thinking about agreeing to a very substantial discount. So we'll pay X. Yeah. And we've been called to a meeting in two two weeks to discuss this. What do you think we should do? So I said, well, leave it with me. And I rang up my colleagues in the States, Michael Wallace in particular, and said, have you seen this happen with this investor recently? I said, we've had two examples in the last six months where the same thing's happened. And they want a completely different deal. They want a percentage to be paid on undrawn commitments and a different percentage on drawn commitments. In other words, what they were trying to do was to have avoid sort of a lag effect by paying a big percentage on undrawn commitments. They were happy to pay a larger percentage on drawn. Yes. I went back to BC Partners and that's what they went over to meet with this investor and and propose. And and the discussion basically went as follows. I'm told they're sitting opposite each other and the investor says to BC Partners, what are you prepared to offer? And they started out with a discounted number. And the investor came back and said, well, we were thinking about something around about X percent i.e. the very number that BC Partners had told me they were willing to accept when we started the negotiation. And at that point, BC Partners said, how about this as a proposal, this percentage undrawn and this percentage undrawn? And the investor turned around and said, you're clearly well informed. Let's move on. And that was the deal that was struck. That deal was worth, you know, a considerable amount of Mm -hmm. money. And that was really the value that came from having that, that U.S. knowledge. Interesting. So what, what's next for Jason Glover? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, there, there's, always, there's always the challenge of funds being raised. If someone had told me 20 odd years ago, I first started working for EQT on the 23rd of December, 1999. I, I remember the day very well. It was um, just prior Happy to Christmas. Christmas yeah. yeah, it was just prior to Christmas. And the previous Christmas, my wife had given birth to our first child and had had a cesarean and I had been working. So I remember it very well because I said I wouldn't do anything the, immediately prior to Christmas. I wouldn't take any calls. And there's a call that came through <laughs> that I did take and mm-hmm. um, it turned out it was EQT. So, you know, with EQT... That was EQT3, and now we're on EQT10. So that's gone through eight evolutions. And yeah. if someone had told me that 
each time I could come up with new ideas mm-hmm. or whatever, I'd said no. I thought I'd exhausted them all back in 2004. Yeah. But you keep coming up with new things. You stay close to what's happening in the marketplace. So there's always that challenge. There's the challenge of managing this office. We've gone from a revenue of around about $140 million back in 2017 when I took over to this year be close to 420. Mm-hmm. So we've tripled. And there are lots of exciting initiatives that are ongoing or about to happen. So there's that. So, you know, from a professional perspective, I feel fulfilled. But I, I, I got the hint from the question that you were thinking about what I might do outside of work. <laughs> <laughs> you can take it as you will. Yeah, I mean, you, you've. I saw that you've. You're now involved with GB Boxing, mm. which was, seemed like it came out of nowhere. I had no idea you had an interest in that. How did that come about? The boxing thing came about 2009. Uh, in the run up to the Olympics in London, the government were concerned about the state of British boxing. Uh, boxing in the amateur ranks has always been England, Scotland, and Wales. Yeah. And like a lot of sports, when you compete as the home nations, bringing teams together for an Olympics is problematic. Mm -hmm. You see that in football, for instance. Boxing was no different. You're competing against each other the whole time, and then you're asked for two weeks every four years to uh, pull together and act as one. It doesn't really work. So the government introduced a body called GB Boxing to sit on top of the home nations when it came to performance sport in the run-up to the Olympics, and they needed board members. And my good friend Tony Mallon was asked to go on the board. And when he went on the board, they asked if he knew of a commercial lawyer. And so I was approached and took it on and did eight years, enjoyed it. We're very, very hot on governance. Um, In fact, all sports bodies are pretty hot with governance. UK Sport do a great job in sort of managing it to the best corporate standards. So I'd done eight years, had to step down as a director, but I really enjoyed my time there and was invited to apply for the job of chair about this time last year and fortunately uh, got it. So it's great and it's very rewarding. Um, there have been a lot of things that have happened over the years, but my time on the board has historically coincided with the greatest success we've had. Well, yeah, uh, the London boxing. Olympics, I guess, was probably the first you know, big thing that happened, right? When, yeah, we, we won three goals, one silver, one bronze. That was the best we had done since 1908, where I think we can probably say, you know, sport was very different then and you had relatively few countries competing. And again, you know, just very lucky. We, we've got a, a very good structure. I have a fantastic chief executive, Matt Holt, who's been GB Boxing for 13 years. And then the coach, Rob McCracken, who's been Anthony Joshua's coach, Cole Frosch's coach. He is very committed to the program and yeah. very fortunate. So I consider it to be very fortunate. It's not, it's probably not like a lot of chairs roles where you're having to deal with problems. I sort of, I think I'm very fortunate that it seems to run pretty smoothly and I don't have too much to do. There's no controversy in that sport. Like it's not exactly the, it can get a bad press from time to time, you know, with the head injuries or whatever it is. You're right to point it out. I mean, we spend a lot of time on those types of things. I guess that's one of the things I try to bring to it is a perspective of outside of boxing. I've I've never boxed myself, but looking at it from a layman's perspective and how you can make it safer. So, you know, head injuries is a, is a good point. We're, we're very focused on injuries generally, yeah. concussion being part of that. We're part of a group of sports that are looking at some very interesting technology. You, you may have seen it in the press in the last week or so, but mouth guards that basically can detect 
head impacts and can advise oh, really? and, and, and pick up immediately whether there are potential problems. So there's a lot of work being done on things like that. So is that something that, that, that the NFL and the US will be doing as well? I guess, yeah, I'm sure they will be. Yeah. I'm sure they will be. So, so that type of stuff we're looking at the whole time, looking at training. You think of something like football with, with the impact of heading a football and you might not necessarily be able to change it on the pitch or in the ring in boxing terms, but you might change your training habits to make sure you're doing much less of it. So, yeah, it's exciting. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, great. Right. Well, I, I won't take any more of your time. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Pleasure. I, well, I'm, I'm very flattered to have been asked, and uh, I hope if anyone's still listening to this at this point that they've enjoyed it, and um, good luck with the future it, It'll podcast. be edited by the time we're done. <laughs> well, good luck with the future podcast. I hope they go well. Thank you very much, Jason. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bye.